Uh, I am Jason Gardner. I am the executive founder and executive chairman of Marketa. Marketa is a platform for companies that want to build payment card products like Visa and MasterCard card products. They can be obviously used in phones, they can be tapped. Uh, we operate in 40 countries around the world. And uh, the panel today is the disruption that built the payments revolution. So first I'd like to introduce uh, Kim Lawrence. We can turn that down a little bit. Uh, more than 25, uh, uh, Lawrence, more than a 25 year career with Visa, head of Visa US and has worked across multiple functions, uh, including product strategy and operations. Lauren Dowling. That's a fans of Visa in the room. I don't know, it's great. <laughs> we like it. Uh, Lauren Dowling, Dowling, head of product uh, developer payment services at Coinbase. Uh, head of product developer. Yes. I, I, nobody, nobody clapped for me, so. Uh, she oversees critical crypto payment tools uh, that enable businesses and Web3 startups to accept payments. Uh, and transacting crypto. Uh, prior to Coinbase, Lauren held leadership roles at Intuit and Intercom and has worked in, in VC venture capitalism as a principal at Streamlined Ventures. And before I introduce Mark, uh, I just want to say that Lauren's dad is here. <laughs> so Joe. <laughs> Uh, which I just want to say, like, how great it is uh, that her father uh, is here to support her. That's very, very nice. So awesome. Uh, Mark Monaco, uh, head of enterprise payments at Bank of America, uh, more than 25 years in payments. Uh, I almost caught up to you. Uh, responsible for defining and driving implementation uh, for B of A's payment initiatives. Represents B of A as the chairman of the board of directors of the payments company of the Clearinghouse, the operator of the real-time payments network, CHIP's wire service, an EPN ACH service, and the management committee for early warding systems, uh, which is operator of the Zelle network. So if you have any payment questions whatsoever, like this is the panel to talk to. <laughs> um, so before we, we kick off and jump into uh, everything, I, I wanted to actually talk about the, the elephant in the room, which is you know we had the second largest and third largest bank failures in history uh, in the last three days. Uh, I think it's worth uh, talking about uh, these, but we don't want to uh, talk about them in the panel. Uh, what's important about, obviously, payments per se is you know, banks are the infrastructure or the utility uh, to payment services, uh, specifically card payments, uh, ACH, and, and others. But we thought we could debate this. Uh, you're probably on Twitter seeing it uh, constantly flying around, but we thought we would get back to the basics and talk about payments, and I thought that was uh, something more important than the, uh, the, the current uh, state of things. So, so payments is a, an important topic, and it's because uh, payments has really changed so much in the last decade, and the level of digital payments uh, adoption since COVID-19 uh, pandemic goes uh, past, uh, way past uh, what anyone really ever predicted. Uh, consumers don't see behind the curtains, and we thought that was an important part of this session. Uh, in payments, but there are several massive and overlapping ecosystems uh, within the payments world that have a huge impact really really on all of our lives, not just here in the U.S., but, but, but really around the world. And if we do our jobs properly up here, uh, I'm hoping that everyone will come out of this uh, with a clear understanding of how money is evolving and why, and maybe look a little more closely at the future of technologies driving that change. So first question. When we talk about digital payments and all the innovation we've seen in the past decades, it sounds so modern and bleeding edge, but it's actually a part of something that has been happening for thousands and thousands of years, and will go on for thousands of years. All of this innovation is an aid of exchange of value, which has been happening since the beginning of time, almost, and will continue again for thousands of years to come. So payments has always been in a state of disruption uh, in evolution, so I want to start by asking all of you, uh, a question about past disruptions. What is one payment in innovation that seems kind of old school um, but uh, at this point, but that you can remember really being blown away with at the time? So we will start with Lauren. First of all, it's uh, great to be with everyone today and it's great to be here and thank you, Jason, for the nice introduction for all of us and, and for uh, moderating this panel. When I think of um, a payments innovation that's now old hat or, um, uh, you know, um, it's really 
the credit and debit card, which as some of you remember, was first introduced around 1966. And then, you know, uh, over the ensuing decades became widely adopted. And, and that uh, enabled um, merchants to expand their sales and enabled convenience and credit extension for consumers. But fundamentally, the most, and then it also enabled something we didn't envision at, at the time, right, which is uh, pretty remarkable, and that's e-commerce, right? I think, you know, we have to ask ourselves where we would be uh, from an e-commerce perspective if, if we didn't have those tools. But the, the other thing about the innovation of the credit, uh, the credit card was that it established a trust framework, right, where any time um, as a consumer you walked in and you saw the acceptance mark um, for a, a major uh, card network, you, you had a, a level of trust in that merchant, you felt that there was a level of due diligence, and you also knew that um, there was a, a, a scheme um, or a program to, to protect your purchases. From the standpoint of the merchant, um, you knew that uh, once you got that authorization, you, you knew you would get paid and that you had good funds. Um, so uh, that, uh, that would be my answer in terms of the old hat innovation. All right, awesome. Kim? Yeah, I'll, um, I'll talk about how we initiate transactions, so tap to pay. Um, I would argue probably not fully mainstream yet, but we've hit the tipping point in the U.S. It's mainstream everywhere else in the world. The U.S. was the last to kind of move to tapping and paying. Um, and what this is is when you go to the point of sale, you can tap your card, you can tap your phone to initiate a payment. And it's easy and seamless coming out of the pandemic. It's clean, right? There was a lot of, there's a consumer expectation and demand now that I don't touch anything to pay at the point of sale, which is really important. Um, and just to kind of hit on how mainstream it is these days, actually one in three visa transactions in the U.S. are now tapped. A lot of people might not know that. In major cities like New York and in the San Francisco Bay Area where I live, it's more like one in two transactions are being Does, does that include mobile and card? It, yes, that's all, all in, yeah. Card is still the predominant method of tapping um, in the U.S., probably in most cases by, you know, sort of two-thirds, one-third card. Um, and that's just the habituation that the consumers um, have, have had around you pull out your card and you pay. Um, and so it is, but like recall just 10 years ago in the US, all we did was swipe cards. That was only 10 years ago. It's probably six or seven years ago, we were just trying to figure out how to dip a card to, to you know, do a chip transaction, which is all about security. The chip brings added security to the transaction. It eliminates counterfeit fraud from the ecosystem, which is really important. And contactless does, or tap to pay does the same exact thing. It's safe, secure, and it's much easier and quicker to kind of get through the line. So I would say that's kind of one of the, the newer mainstream things. And, and, and why did the rest of the world tap to pay before the US? Well, the tap to pay always followed the EMV rollout of chip cards. And the EMV rolled out around the world, largely due to lack of connectivity and lack of telephony. It was more of those types of uh, sort of environments that caused the move to secure payments earlier there. In the US, we just had a more sophisticated, more connected network, the way Mark just described it, uh, that held fraud relatively low. And the investment needed to kind of uh, roll out that chip technology was lower, but for people who have been around in the U.S. for a while, big merchant compromises, like people will think back to Target and Home Depot and some of these big compromises that really shifted uh, the pace at which the U.S. turned to chip. And then in every other market we've seen, you start with a chip card, which is the dip or contact chip, and then a fast follow is always contactless because of the seamlessness at the point of sale. Thank you. Uh, one of the payment innovations that I think is really folded into the fabric of society and I was blown away by when it launched is peer-to-peer -peer payments. Applications like Venmo, like Zelle, like Square Cash, where you can basically just text people money now. Um, and that had a really huge change in consumer behavior. I remember I used to go out to dinner with friends and everybody's like pulling out their cash, seeing if they have enough and it's kind of like a real pain um, to like, hey, it doesn't matter. You pay, we'll just Menmo you. And it just happens really seamlessly and I think that was really, really massive. Yeah, and I, and I think in service to all of this is the ability to instantly issue a card into like Apple Pay or Samsung Pay or Google Pay. Uh, that for me, it wasn't the transaction itself but it was the ability to sign up for a card 
see that card pop into an app and then have it drop into my Apple Pay or my Apple phone and then be able to pay at the point of sale. I thought that was, that was pretty whiz-bang stuff. Second question. What has been the biggest driver of change in payments so far? It is, is it simple, intuitive design that millions of people can get their heads around? Or is it the new, cool, whiz-bang technology that grabs attention and forces the consumer to use it? Uh, Lauren, we'll start with you. Yeah. Um, I think it's the combination of really two things. The first is an innovation on payments capabilities that enable us to deliver payments in a new form factor that wasn't possible before or allow for payments that are faster, easier, more secure, or cheaper than they've ever been before. But critical to the adoption of this is the industry getting together behind a standard that actually enables mass adoption and people to understand how to use it. And I think a great example is tap to pay which Kim was just talking about. The technology to power that existed for over a decade before you saw things like Apple Pay. But it took the entire, and you could go into like single stores and you could tap to pay, but like why would you put your credit card on your phone to do that? And so it really took the industry getting together and saying, hey, here's how this is gonna work and it's all gonna work the same way. And now card issuers, phone creators, everybody can have a standard that will really drive this innovation forward. And, and how did, so I, before Coinbase came out with payments and specifically the Coinbase card, what were your, what was your constituency telling you that they wanted from payments? Yeah, absolutely. So what the Coinbase customers were telling us was they had these stores of value in crypto that they wanted to be able to use as the funding mechanism to pay for things. And crypto payments today, a lot of them, you have to have crypto in a wallet, a merchant has to accept it that way, and the friction of getting merchants to accept crypto was really getting in their way. And so we partnered with Visa and Marketa to bring together the Coinbase card, which enabled people to use their store of crypto balances, which we liquidate at the time of payment, and then the merchants can still get paid in cash. Uh, and it really just removes that friction and enables those consumers to leverage their crypto balances. To so pay. is that about the utility for them, or was that about design or a marrying of the two? Yeah, it's, I think it's a combination. It was also, um, when Coinbase card came out, we were heading into a bull run, so people had a lot of crypto gains that they wanted to figure out how to spend. So customer demand. <laughs> awesome. Kim. Um, yeah, I'll just add on. I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's simplicity that leverages technology usually that, I, that I've seen come to market with, you know, innovation and, and disrupting payments and technology. I also think, and Lauren, your answer highlights this, it has to provide a value to the end user. It's got to have utility or it doesn't really matter. I don't think the technology has to be whiz-bang at all. Um, so the example that for me that comes to mind on the Visa network is a product that we call Visa Direct. So most people think of Visa as the card you have in your wallet. You have a credit card or a debit card, as Mark explained, that came about back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and that is what you use. You, you either shop online or go into the, you know, a physical retailer to pay for goods and services. And money in that transaction flows one way, from your account ultimately to the merchant's account. It's way more complicated than that, but that's effectively the way that it flows. And probably just about eight to 10 years ago, I think we, as we were looking at all of these movements of money that happen outside of a traditional payment. So think about P2P and account to account types of payments. Think about things like disbursements, like I have an insurance claim and I get a paper check. Um, think about things like the gig economy that has cropped up and workers want to get paid same day. If I'm a driver, I drive all day. Instead of waiting for a paycheck at the end of two weeks, I want someone to drop money into my account. So these are the kinds of things that we were seeing emerge as use cases. And as we looked at the Visa Rails, we were like, hey, those go in the opposite direction as well. So not only do you have to, can you use the payment rails to pay, you can also use them to push money to an account. And therein lies sort of the solution that was Visa Direct. So I would argue sim relatively simple because it really took advantage of a lot of the same infrastructure that was already there. It's complicated and that's, it's got a whole different set of rules around it and pushing money to accounts is uh, complicated for a lot of uh, you know, compliance and regulatory reasons. Uh, but it provides a huge opportunity to digitize these payments that today are oftentimes slow, they're expensive, they're paper-based, they need additional data to go with them to make them successful. So it really unlocked a big opportunity um, that kind of ma mashed up sort of the simple tech, 
and really utility at the end of the day. Yeah, I always think about it as how, how do you ride the rails? You can ride the rails in many different ways. And, and I've always been fascinated, and I'm sure many people in the room, is when you travel around the world, you can use the same card, the same payment device you had based on what's called ISO 8583. So uh, ISO 8583 is an international standard messaging format that allows you to travel around the world and use your Visa card. And it's this, this sort of exploration of the rails, as we've seen over time, has been, has been pretty fascinating. We'll move on to question three. So I was talking to somebody at dinner last night. I was, anybody, anybody at a party last night? <laughs> wow, this is definitely a payment nerd room. <laughs> <laughs> all in good company. Um, so we were talking about, like, you know, they commented on and, and sort of the confusion of how do all the panelists fit together? Bank of America, Visa, Coinbase. What's, what's the interconnectivity or the symbiotic relationship between them? And in explaining it, I started to tell about Visa and how Coinbase together worked on the card and how Marketa fit in as the processor and the issuer. And it got me thinking um, what a surprisingly interconnected payment system. I and mean, Mark talked about you know, all the things around the clearinghouse. Um, uh, Kim talked about you know, how we use Visa Direct. It's really interesting how the rails run and how all the banks are interconnected. So I thought it would be really nice to kind of get into the weeds a little bit. For, for us, like we live it and breathe it every day. And for those who are not in the weeds of payments, um, you know, can you talk about uh, where you sit in the ecosystem and how important where you are and who you work with is so uh, uh, really critical to, uh, to success? And we'll start with Kim. Yeah, so um, like, I'm probably best situated to answer this because we sit right in the middle, right, as the network of, of uh, the payments ecosystem. And there are many networks kind of out there that do different things. Um, everybody, Visa first and foremost is a B2B company, right? So as you look at the players up here on stage along with me, these are all of our clients and customers. And so when we think about the end user, the end consumer, the end retailer, the insurance company that I just described, um, we don't sell or market directly to any of those folks. We actually work kind of behind the scenes with all of our partners and clients to help fuel their businesses at the end of the day. So all of the Visa cards that you have in your wallet, when you pull it out, it has Bank of America on it. It just happens to be a Visa card. Um, Visa doesn't lend. We don't, right? All of that goes through Bank of America as an example. So I think you've already heard some examples. Lauren's you know, company, you were, they, they were the first crypto company to actually issue a card on our network. Um, Marketa, we've been working with you guys, I think, since probably the early days that. of your existence. Um, a lot of times behind the scenes, working on solutions together, you know, working on partnerships together, going in and working together at clients. Um, and then, you know, Bank, Bank of America, I should have started with this. Mark talked about in the 60s, credit and debit cards existing. Bank AmeriCard was a credit card before Visa existed. It, the Bank AmeriCard became Visa a few years later. Um, and Bank of America is one of Visa's largest clients and partners. Uh, folks on Mark and my teams work closely together on a daily basis, really working in support of Bank of America's customers and what they're delivering to their end consumer, um, both on the consumer and the merchant and business sides of, of, of the business. So. Yeah, that's pretty cool. You touch upon the history. So, so the Bank America card was started in I think Fresno, California. Yeah. Uh, then became I think Visa in 1976. Uh, Marketa plugs into the Visa network, which is a network of banks, including Bank of America, so that Coinbase can build products for their customers on our platform. So, that in essence is the interconnectivity, and I find actually really, really cool because it you can travel around the world and you know there's tens of thousands of banks on the visa network and uh, you can build new products uh, on those networks uh, for banks and for customers so it's it's, it's pretty cool uh, so question four so uh, we are all payment nerds here clearly because nobody was out last night uh, having fun at a party um, uh, what was the first thing you can remember learning about the payments ecosystem that hooked you in uh, and made you feel like you just had to know more. So I'll start with you, Lauren. Me. Um, 
So I am certainly a payments nerd, but I'm also a history nerd. And one of the things that has always fascinated me is that the way that money moves through a system and where value accrues in that chain can have massive impacts on society. And actually some of the largest inflection points of human growth and progress have come when there's a significant change in where wealth distributes through that system. And so one of the greatest examples of this in history is looking back to the times of feudalism. And feudal lords used to own large swaths of land and all of the people who worked on that land and harvested goods, all that value accrued to the feudal lords. And in the 1200s, when the Magna Carta came out and established early property rights, those parcels were distributed to individuals. And those individuals, for the first time, were able to start to actually generate value for themselves from that land. And this brought a generation out of poverty and it enabled you know, humans to turn from just thoughts of survival to more creative endeavors. And it led to the Renaissance, which was a massive flourishing of the human condition. And I see a really similar inflection point today. If you look at the tech economy, the large tech companies are like the feudal landowners. And the data that we all generate every day and the interactions that we have across the internet are like the land. And today, your data is so valuable. Every action you have, everything that you do generates that data. But Google and Facebook, they're the beneficiaries of that data. And so early in my career, when I read the Bitcoin white paper, um, I came to to understand that the power of blockchain technology is that it enables people to truly digitally own things. And for the first time, it can actually enable that transfer to where you can own your own data, you can vote with your feet and move between different ecosystems, and you can generate that value for yourself. And so I got extremely hooked on the idea of this new payment system, this new restructuring of where wealth flows in our economy. Uh, and so I joined Coinbase, uh, and I'm trying to bring that, bring that about. Wow, Joe. <laughs> Joe's, Joe's proud that was, that of his daughter. That was very impressive. <laughs> um, so I'll chime in with a really nerdy response. When we're quoting ISO and EMV up here, that's like real payments nerds. So, um, as, uh, so I started my career at Visa out of undergrad. I started in a management training program where we kind of rotated around the company to contribute, but we also largely were just learning the business. And one of my rotations actually turned into my first role in the company. Um, I was a tech writer on the EMV specification. So I've talked about EMV chip cards and contactless. All of that's based on this international standard. It's why our cards work with tapping and dipping around the world. And a lot of people don't know, EMV actually stands for Europay, MasterCard, and Visa. And I was on Team Visa for this. I worked with a bunch of PhDs that had retired from IBM. We worked in, you know, kind of the pre-Valley Valley. We were in San Mateo, California. Um, and I was literally like the scribe. I was like a year out of undergrad. And it was fantastic. It was like, it was, I learned payments from the inside out, technically how they work how they show up on a card, how they work in a terminal, and then how you transact, you know, from the guts, you know, of the system. So uh, that was my first job. Thankfully, I never have been paid to code anything because I don't <laughs> think I would be here today. Um, but that learning and understanding sort of the technical foundation has been instrumental in my career. So Mark, I do want to pull you in here because you are involved in so many different kinds of money movement. Uh, and you have quite a career, so what, what got you hooked into it? So my story is uh, a little different. What really you know, got me hooked on payments was actually in business school and, and the concept that, um, that companies, and this is kind of apropos to the events of, uh, of the past week, is, is that companies don't uh, um, go out of business because they're insolvent. They go out of business because they're illiquid. And, um, you know, payments is really the circulatory system uh, of the economy. So um, my initial interest, you know, derived from that. And, you know, it got me really excited about uh, helping um, together with partners um, develop and innovate around payments to keep that circulatory system kind of healthy and strong and more efficient and growing. So question five, so payments is a massive industry uh, where a card transaction takes place in a few seconds while someone is on their phone, uh, standing at a counter or on a store in a transaction uh, to clear. 
What do you think would surprise the average person most about what goes on underneath the hood? And I'll start with you, Mark. So uh, there's a lot. Uh, there's a lot that goes on underneath the hood, both before the transaction and, importantly, in that those seconds or milliseconds when, when that transaction happens, when the card's presented, and, and you know, you walk out of uh, um, that um, uh, shop with, with your shopping bag, or you clear your shopping cart um, on a website. The, uh, you know, uh, in those second or milliseconds, there's things like customer authentication uh, going on. Is it you that's actually doing it? Uh, there's a verification of whether you have the actual funds to buy it, whether it be in your in your bank account or if it's a credit uh, a credit line. Um, there's uh, there's dozens of fraud strategies that I can't talk about that are being uh, <laughs> that are being applied um, uh, again in, in seconds. Um, then in the background, there's also all sorts of uh, sanction screening and depending on the payment system, sanction screening and things of that nature. And so um, there's a lot that goes um, uh, into a payment system, you, you know, beyond um, the form factor, right? And I think one thing that's really interesting and I think important for people to understand is that um, there's a whole series of attributes that actually make a payment system uh, viable, and it's not uh, always just technology. You know, for for a payment system to be robust and have wide widespread adoption, pr particularly for high value, I mean low value, high volume retail payments, to, um, you know, it needs to, it needs to be usable, uh, uh, which means scalable, widely accepted. It needs to um, um, have regulatory acceptance. It needs to be, have a strong legal framework around things like privacy, loss allocation. Um, it needs to have robust technology, and that's both online and offline. Um, and um, finally, it has to have market acceptance, right, which means um, the market has to be ready to use it. People need to want to use it. Lauren. Me. Um, I'm sorry, I kind of forgot the question. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm bad. You know, I was so enthralled by Mark's answer. I know. <laughs> yeah, it was really good. Do you want me to jump in? Like, I can just tack on yeah, to this a little bit. Is that all right? I remember. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, please go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, like everything Mark said, I think the, the fact that we've already established that like all four of our companies can touch a single transaction in milliseconds like highlights how much is going on behind the scenes. Um, but a lot of, a, there's a lot that goes on behind or like past that one second that you're standing and tapping or, 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 um, or dipping your card. I mean, from a network perspective, in addition to everything Mark talked about that, that a bank does in that transaction, uh, the Visa network does, you know, we check data, we screen for fraud, we do a whole bunch of scoring um, on the inbound of that transaction. Uh, we send it from point A to point B and sometimes to point C and D, depending on who's involved in the transaction. And then probably the most important thing is what happens to sort of the life cycle of a transaction. If you think about, um, and you know, Mark started to touch on this, but you do a purchase, you're protected from fraud at the end of the day, so you, fraud might show up on your account, and that might be 20 days later, right? It might be, you might not have gotten what you ordered, but you got charged for it. Um, and so all of the pieces that the underlying pieces of that that make that transaction end to end all the way until you're satisfied with your purchase at the end of the day is also something that we're all we all play a key role in right Mark's team is the one that like you know they answer the phone if you've got a question or they've got someone chatting with you online if you've got an inquiry about that purchase um, the visa rules and sort of dispute rights are all set up around what you can actually create a dispute around, right? And, and then we connect that on the back end through processing as well. So I think a lot of people are focused on the in the moment when I tap my card, what happens? Um, and there is like, usually I think about 120 days for every transaction that lives on in sort of the life cycle of that transaction. We tried to change that during the pandemic. Yes, I, I understand. <laughs> Particularly for airlines and crews. Yes. Oh, totally. Yeah, so, so, Lauren, so what, like, yeah. what, what surprised the average person yeah, the about average, what's no, under I the hood? It up. So I actually thought, back. like, what, what, what's, what I think is cool is 
you know, how do you pay with crypto at the point of sale and the gateway that Coinbase has created, if you could touch upon that, and then yeah. the beginning of the payment. So I thought Absolutely. like that always fascinates people, yeah. that you're able to actually spend some, you know, some, some value at the point of sale that's not completely. So I think to, to touch on what you just asked about card and, and the Coinbase card is when you're at the point of sale, we have a relationship with all of the partners on stage and we're able to authorize that payment. And in that moment, Coinbase knows to liquidate your crypto for dollars and that is what then funds the transaction. But I think one of the most interesting things about how instantaneous payments feel, and we touched on it a little bit, is that really only half of a transaction happens in the few seconds that you're standing at a counter, right? You swipe your card, you take your goods, you walk out of the store, you're all good. But on the business side, it can take a couple days to weeks depending on where you are in the world, even months, to actually get paid out from that transaction. And so um, a company I was talking to recently, actually, um, who's based in Europe, said that it took them 30 days to receive their credit card settlements. And that was creating a real cash flow problem for their business. And so they were coming to Coinbase, and they were really excited about starting to accept payments on blockchain rails, um, not just because blockchain is global by default. So anyone anywhere in the world can spend using crypto, and it happens the exact same, but also because it's real-time settlement. And so not only does the payer pay in a few seconds, but for merchants, it only takes a few minutes or up to an hour to receive their funds. Um, and there's tons of investment we're making in making that even cheaper and faster. Um, but that ability to really make both sides of a transaction happen in a few seconds is, I think, something we see a tremendous potential in. And, and before I move on to uh, question six, Kim, um, can you talk a little bit about acquiring? Because that's sort of the big piece that's missing here. Just quickly for the, for the audience, just so we, they understand how that actually fits in a part of this as well. Yeah, and you should keep me honest here because Mark runs one of the biggest acquiring businesses in the U.S. So um, the way to think about maybe like how the network is set up, and this is, I'll keep it really simple, but as a consumer, you have a bank who could be Bank of America. They issue you your Visa card. Um, they lend to you, they hold your, you know, deposits if you're a checking customer with them and a whole other series of, of products and services that they offer to you. But that account is between you and the bank. And every merchant that accepts a Visa card has a bank too. And that bank is, an, we could refer to it as an acquirer. So in the case of Bank of America, they're on both sides. They're a bank to the consumer. They're also a big bank to merchants. Um, and they do things beyond just allowing them to accept cards. They also hold treasury and funds, and they do all kinds of things like that. So can I yes. add a little yes, bit to sure. that? So what, what Kim is talking about is the so-called four-party model, yes. right? And so you have, um, you have a consumer, uh, you have a, bank, a consumer's bank, a, a, a business bank, and the business of the merchant, right? And when I referenced in, in, during the first question the notion of the trust framework, right, it's that four-party model that really is the foundation of that trust framework because you know uh, from, uh, if you're a merchant, right, you have the confidence that when you get that authorization through the Visa network from Bank of America that you're getting the money, right, um, for, the, for the, the sweater or the cheeseburger, whatever it might be. By the same token, right, um, uh, the purchaser has the confidence because of the acquiring bank, right, that if there's, if the shirt doesn't fit or if it's not made out of, uh, you know, good material or whatever, that, that when it's charged back, that even if the merchant fails, that'll be, that'll, that'll, um, that it'll be honored. So the magic is, is the trust framework as much as anything. That's right. And, and it's, it's interesting. So like we, we probably all buy things online or offline and the speed at which that happens is pretty incredible. It's also very deceptively complex. And that deceptive complexity is so simple at the point of sale. But next time, like you go out and you buy something, know that behind the scenes, there is an incredible amount of technology to make that experience uh, as, as it is. So question six uh, for Lauren and Kim. Uh, you all have very different consumer profile, and I imagine the answer to the question looks very different. How do each of you connect your work with the consumers you serve and figure out what they want or need uh, from payments. Yeah, so I'm actually willing to bet we look at our customers fairly similarly, but our approach to solving the problems that they have looks pretty different. At the end of the day, and we've talked about this quite a bit already, but customers really want fast, cheap, 
easy, secure payments. And that's true for both consumers and for businesses. And at Coinbase, we see that blockchain has some real advantages. And we service many different customer types. And some of the ways that they're already finding benefit in blockchain are enterprises are starting to turn to crypto as a way to manage international corporate treasuries. Instead of it taking five days and a lot of FX fees to move from euros to dollars, they can buy a US-denominated stablecoin and transfer it in a few seconds for way lower fees. For you know, small and medium businesses, particularly in emerging markets like Nigeria and Venezuela, we're seeing merchants who don't have access to trusted banking systems or governments that they can, that they can you know, rely upon starting to access digital payments through crypto because they can just have that money on their phone and they don't actually need somebody to underwrite them to participate. And for consumers, we're seeing remittances is a huge, uh, is a huge use case, that they're finding it easier to send money back to friends and family around the globe using crypto rails. And so these are some of the early use cases and we are constantly talking to all of our customers to understand what's hard in their lives and what we can build to help make that more streamlined and better. Yeah, and I think from Visa's perspective, I already mentioned, we're a B2B company, right? So our, our consumers are these guys' consumers at the end of the day. So a lot of informing you know, our product roadmap um, and the things that we're developing at Visa is really informed by everyone sitting up here. Um, so I think it's, you know, we, we look at, we obviously have a consumer-facing brand that's very well known with consumers. Uh, but by and large, we're not, we are, we, def, we are not creating things without, you know, kind of input from clients like all of you. Question seven. So we've seen huge changes in payments in recent years, and now we have Gen Z and Gen Alpha, which I did not know existed, and I just found that out, uh, <laughs> who will be coming, coming of age uh, in financial services uh, in the coming years, and might uh, never step foot inside a bank or use a physical card. Uh, at Marquette, we call this the TikTok generation. Which, uh, so I have a 14-year-old daughter who I refer to as the TikTok generation. Uh, she lives on her phone. She pays with her phone. Uh, I've handed her a plastic card, and she told me to go recycle it. Uh, she doesn't know what a bank is. Uh, she thinks uh, you know, that the phone is the bank, and, you know, and, and theoretically, it kind of is, because you do everything on that device. Um, how are you seeing these younger generations uh, change the face of commerce in meeting them where they are. So all of you, and I'll start with Mark. So I'm going to, before directly answering the question, I, I want you to be able to go home and tell your daughter that we are now using all recycled plastics for our <laughs> together Together with our partners at Visa, about six months ago we started, so all our new issuance is recycled plastic. Okay. Um, <laughs> That being I, I, I am going to tell her yeah, that. So, so. you know, um, and, and it, it, in some ways it's actually on point to the answer, okay? And when we think about this, right, I kind of put in the context to, uh, of the what and the how, right? And, you know, the financial needs of, of, of Gen Z and, and the soon-to-be, you know, alpha generation, even though they're only between 1 and 11 right now, I guess, as we learned, <laughs> um, it, you know, is really no different than... than than the generations that came before them, depending on where they are in their in their life journey, um, you know, uh, young folks, Gen Z, um, and young millennials in particular, right? Um, their financial needs center around having to have an operating account so they can collect their um, paychecks, make their payments, uh, having the need for credit, um, financial education, financial literacy. Um, What's changing is the how part, and that's how they engage um, with us, right? So the need is, is the same, but it, it, the engagement is morphing. And so increasingly, the, these groups want to engage with us digitally, and we have a whole suite of digital products, whether it be you know, the Bank of America mobile app, whether it be um, uh, um, financial life benefits, which is all about you know, uh, literacy, whether it be life plan, whether it be um, safe balance to prevent young people um, from overdrafting. All those things um, are, are designed to, to help them along that, that journey. But they engage with us digitally um, and you know, to the point where half of our sales and new products are digitally. That all being said, I, I really want to debunk something. Uh, and that, that is the notion that the Gen Z and the young millennials aren't, aren't um, meeting with us uh, physically in, 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 in our financial centers, of which we have about 4,000 conveniently located across the United States. Uh, 
but by the way, that's down from over 6,000. Um, the point is, um, is that, um, uh, and in fact, our Gen Z and our young millennial cu customers actually visit us more frequently uh, than our boomers and other senior cohorts. And that's because um, in, in a lot of cases, they're at points of their life where they need um, to talk to somebody. They need advice, whether it be purchasing a home uh, or, or investing, starting to plan, uh, and things, of, things of that nature. Um, so um, they're uh, totally, you know, digitally native, right, as Jason said. But um, as they uh, develop in their financial lives, they, they do have the need for that interaction. And, um, and, and we're trying to meet them where they are. I would just, I'd just conclude by saying that journey that they're on for financial services is, no, is really not different than the journey we see with our merchant clients, right? Where you know, increasingly younger, younger people right, are, are researching online, they're starting a purchase online, but they may be concluding it um, uh, in the financial center or in the physical store when they actually go uh, to, to, to see the television or, or the sweater. So that's that omni-channel buzzword that y'all hear about. You want me to jump in? Yes. Okay. <laughs> He's getting himself organized over there. Um, so maybe just a, like a few stats from a network, payments network perspective. Uh, these generations are acting very differently. So we look at it across digital payments and digital wallets, which is sort of, you know, the notion of not having a card and not paying with a card. So 51% of Gen Z, I don't think the alpha generation has, is paying for very much. Their parents are. In fact, I think most of Gen Z, like their parents are paying for it too. That's how my kids are. I'm paying for everything. Um, so, but they are, 51% are paying, 51% of their transactions are coming from a digital wallet. Um, 11% of all of their spend is happening on a digital wallet. Um, and 20% of them, when you survey them, say they only use a digital wallet. They have nothing else happening, which highlights how complicated some of these payments are because you've got to have sort of an underlying account on that digital wallet to pay. Um, but it's, you know, they are growing up with, you know, digital native. They're coming online in the payments world with that as sort of the first you know, foyer into how they pay, and they are and will behave differently. The one thing that I should say across, you know, all of the generations as we look at them, uh, the one thing that's ubiquitous, regardless of how the, the form factor that they prefer use, is security, right? They want fraud protection. They want to make sure that their data and their payments are secure, and that applies to the, the young ones that are coming up as much as it, it applies to the rest of us. Yeah. I would just add, and it's been said, but Gen Z and Gen Alpha are the first generations to truly come of age entirely online. And they're really blurring the lines between the physical and the digital. And traditional payments, even those that are made online, are all tied back to institutions, right? They're banks with offices and merchants with storefronts and plastic cards that you can recycle. And uh, even when you pay online, you're entering your credit card details, which emulates swiping a card in person. And that could feel really familiar to those of us on stage and really familiar to those of you sitting in the audience, but it's really not to this generation, right? Like they don't understand that. They want things that are way more digitally native. And I think your daughter's the perfect example. They just want to like click a button on their phone and it's paid. And what I think is really incredible about crypto and blockchain is it's part of that digital ethos that people are bringing about. It is truly programmable money that is as flexible and as digital as the experiences that they accept, expect. And it's a much simpler infrastructure and ecosystem for businesses to incorporate. So I am getting reorganized because I'm going to switch some questions up and I want to cool. drop into blockchains. So blockchains in decentralized finance feels like a story that is just beginning to be told. How do you see this playing out for the next, for the average consumer over the next decade? We'll start with Mark, Lauren and then we'll go to Mark. Awesome. Um, blockchain question, I love it. So um, I, we're certainly in the very, very early innings of blockchain technology. And I think if you were to sit at the beginning of the internet in the 90s with dial-up, and for those of you who remember, it used to take like 30 minutes to load an image on, on the internet, um, it was really hard to imagine the promise for consumers of home banking and uh, home shopping or like Instagram, tons of photos, like all in an instant. And even, even more challenging 
challenging to imagine industries like Uber and DoorDash, which make up so much of our economy and require so many innovations on top of that core infrastructure. And sitting at the beginning of crypto, it's also hard to imagine what those industries that are going to be that get built on top of it. But we're building all that infrastructure to make it faster and easier and better. And one of the reasons I'm extremely excited is crypto and blockchain offer the first new internet building block or primitive that we've seen in decades. And I think there are really only three of them. The first was the ability for machines to actually follow instructions, take commands, and compute a lot of information really quickly. The second was the ability for machines to actually transfer information between each other, which gave rise to the internet. And this third one, what blockchains enable with the ability to own value digitally, is the ability for machines to transfer value in, in an autonomous way. And that makes money truly programmable, as I said. Some of the coolest, coolest financial products today are really intricate software layers, but it still sits on top of ACH and wire rails. Like the money itself is still kind of dumb and not programmable. And now, money is going to be as flexible and able to move globally, super secure, in, you know, as creative as a developer can be, is, is how money is going to be able to move. And I think that's going to give rise to just massive new economies. Mark. Well, so um, I think that, that, that um, blockchain and, and DeFi or distributed finance are, are related but different. Obviously, blockchain is a, a technology as was just discussed, the central feature of which is that, you know, it's a, it's a ledger that's not governed by um, or administered by a central authority. Most other ledgers, all roads lead to a central authority to assure, you know, maintenance and, and control and validation, things of that nature. So the applicant, you know, blockchain, you know, we certainly believe has promise. We have, I think, more blockchain patents than any other financial institutions. I uh, question uh, blockchain's application for payments, right? Because of the reasons that I talked about before as to actually what makes uh, you know, a, a payment system. So I think it's beyond technology, right? If we think of, if we think of blockchain as a technology layer, um, DeFi, right, is, is a framework. It's a, it's a way of doing business. And um, obviously, you know, the, the promise or the, the, uh, of, of DeFi is, you know, the offering of financial services that are recorded on a blockchain without the need for any intermediaries. But it also exists outside, uh, you know, what, what, what they call the regulatory perimeter. And so you get the question of, uh, you know, two questions mainly is, are, are there at times risks to financial stability if it got too big? And number two is, is it really, um, you know, does the governance model work? Is the technology always perfect, right? And so I think those are important questions. I think as we go forward, and ultimately we're, we're at a stage now, I think, you know, in this, uh, in this journey where I think, um, these technologies and these business models need to need to move towards what kind of move beyond what I call modial verbs like could, should, and would, and actually start to demonstrate um, you know significant improvement in business outcomes and efficiencies. And I guess I would just put out there maybe three concepts for people um, to think about. The first is you know one of as we move out from, and again, speaking about payments, right? You know, as, we, as you move away from the Federal Reserve, right, to the banking system, to market infrastructures, right, all of which are, are within the prudential regulatory framework to other applications that might be out, outside it, you are by definition increasing risk. So if, if we're gonna do that, then there can be very valid reasons to do that. We have to make sure, right, that the benefits are worth that risk. The other two concepts are, you know, um, to take advantage of technologies like blockchain, um, you don't necessarily need a change in your governance model, right? So, um, and, and you know, uh, you can use blockchain and not necessarily require a decentralized model. And then finally, all all problems in financial services uh, are not solvable by technology. And um, and uh, we'll probably talk about some of those in a minute. Yeah, so, so, so why is blockchain still be, I mean, I even, I, I, sorry about that. Um, I mean, even in the very early days of Marketa, we had the whole sort of beatnik, early, early blockchain crowd telling us we should be adopting blockchain. And we wanted to plug into a utility that we knew worked around the world. So why are we still hearing a lot of this 
around blockchain being used or and potentially even sometimes replacing the existing rails out there, which, which, which as a payment nerd feels like an overwhelming task considering where we're at today and we still have a ways to go. So I, I think it's what I said, which is blockchain has to demonstrate that it actually makes things better, right? And that it's faster, right? That it's more resilient, that it is in fact cheaper. I don't think that's actually happened yet. And, there, um, and you know, some of the speed exam, the programmability, I guess I would grant you, uh, or uh, uh, the smart contract application is the one thing, um, but we haven't seen it yet in practical application at, at any sort of scale. You know, the faster payments networks that have evolved both in the US and around the world, you know, um, clear and settle in real time, right? So. Um, that attribute, right, of a, of, a, of a blockchain network, right, is happening every day already all around the world. Can I respond? Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, so, as I said, blockchain is still in the early days. Like, how many of you remember DOS and thought that was awesome? Like, super technical, we don't think about that anymore, right? And I think there's an expectation in some circumstances that blockchain can solve every problem today, and we're getting there. At Coinbase, we just launched Base, which is a, it's called a layer two network, but it's a, it's a blockchain that does massive scalability, is pushing transactions to cost less than one cent, um, and those transactions settle in seconds. We also, last week, just launched our wallet as a service product, which is gonna enable people to self-bank their own funds in an extremely secure way that's accessible by a username and password. And we're already seeing this utility in tons of places. So I already talked about enterprises using us for global treasury management. There's more than a billion dollars flowing through the crypto systems to do that because it's cheaper. Also, if you look at, like, one of the very first customers I talked to when I joined Coinbase was a company in Venezuela who had decided to start accepting digital payments online through cryptocurrency. And when I talked to him, he was so thrilled because he felt like this was like a real way to participate in the global economy, to get a currency that he felt was less volatile than his national currency, and almost like a nest egg that he could keep as a backup security. And this was in 2020. He was talking about Bitcoin, which I'm pretty sure everyone in this room would look at and say, hey, that's a really volatile currency that's kind of expensive to move around. But to him, that was already stable. And we're building things like the US dollar coin, which is pegged to the dollar. So all of these innovations, and that's been in three years that we now have less than one cent transactions uh, and that we have these US denominated currencies, like we are progressing so quickly and we're serving use cases. And I think the breadth of the use cases we'll be able to serve are coming online in the next few years. So it, it is coming and it's coming quickly. Awesome. Also, I see some folks that are lining up to the microphones. We have so much to cover. We're actually going to make ourselves available uh, after. So, so, so no questions, no open Q&A, but you can ask us questions afterwards uh, individually. Uh, so, Kim, I'll start with you. Uh, everyone is talking about ChatGPT. So who, who has used ChatGPT in the room? Wow. Okay. No, 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 no parties, but AI, <laughs> all in. Uh, uh, it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of funny to me because, I mean, AI has been around for a very long time and, you know, we've built all the models to, to teach computers to think for themselves and ChatGPT is actually really cool. Um, I've actually used it to help my daughter out with her papers. Um, I don't give it to her, but she asked me a question. Uh, she talked to me about the Haitian Revolution and I didn't know about the Haitian Revolution and if you do a search on Google, it's, it doesn't really describe a whole lot. Uh, but ChatGPT was like, wow, you really dig in and learn about it. So it's, it's been pretty cool. So uh, AI has been talked about in payments for a long time. Uh, how does your organization use AI and how do you see it continuing to impact uh, your business? Yeah, so the biggest, I mean, we started back in the early 90s, uh, building and working with AI. As you said, it's been around for a long time. I think it's officially hit mainstream with ChatGPT. And the biggest focus has been around how do we make the network smarter and more safe and secure. A lot of it is around cybersecurity. Uh, when you look at uh, a lot of the tools and capabilities that are built into the network, I think last year alone we saved you know, more than $27 billion in fraud on the network. Uh, I think all of our companies are in the line of fire of the fraudsters, I would say. It's a big area of focus, and so the big the big thing we're building is you know just continuing to to kind of bolster 
the security around the network. I think uh, with a lot of some of these newer tools that I'm sure will continue to evolve at the speed of light, I think there's a lot of opportunity around just even how we do business, right? Like how our companies do business together, how we exchange information, um, you know, all of those things I think are really big opportunities that, that we're also starting to explore around how other areas we can tap into there. Mark. So, um, you know, uh, we've been using AI for a long time as well, but in, in 2017, we, we launched um, the first major um, virtual assistant in financial services called Erica. And in just five years, you know, um, Erica has grown dramatically. Um, uh, you know, in, 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 in the fourth quarter of last year, we, we had about 150 million interactions by 33 million uh, consumers um, with Erica. And it's been a journey. Erica started um, as a, a tool to give guidance, right? So answer questions uh, uh, about how you do things. And it's moved really now into its second stage, right? Which is, which is insights, like, you know, you have a payment due, right? And so it can prompt you to, to do something. Um, and then, you know, as we move forward, right, and develop it even further into interaction where it actually has a dialogue with clients, I think there's great opportunity um, uh, to continue to use tools um, uh, like AI and ChatGBT. Um, but it's, it's also not without risk, so we're taking a, a slow and cautious approach because ultimately, you know, um, you, you have to be very, very um, thoughtful about, you know, privacy, thoughtful about whether these models have, you know, unintentional biases in them. Um, so it has, you know, it's already done incredible things uh, for our company um, and our and our customers, um, and, and I think the future is bright. But uh, I think we have to just be very measured as, as we go about it. Awesome. Uh, so we have about four minutes left. So I want to close on this note. So for all of the impact and adoption uh, in digital payments has seen, uh, about 20% of people in the world don't have a bank account. Uh, and in developing countries, cash is still very much king. So what needs to happen for us to build a bridge to the people and onboard them to the digital payments ecosystem? I'll start with Kim. So Visa's stated purpose is to uplift everyone everywhere by being the best way to pay and be paid. And um, I think the simple way of saying it is we put our money, both foundation and investments, where that purpose lies behind it. Uh, so we have a whole series of investments and philanthropic uh, activities underway literally around the world um, that are all focused on how do we bring more inclusivity around digital payments? How do we get more people into the ecosystem? We have a lot of activities here domestically as well. Um, and around the world. So we're investing in, in trying to help that push. Awesome, Lauren. Yeah, um, so the technology to bring the unbanked, the underbanked and developing economies already exists, right? I've talked about the fact that blockchain really enables true digital ownership. It means all you need now is an internet connection to spin up a crypto wallet and have access to real money on your phone, not just a representation in some bank somewhere. And so that means you don't need a robust and thriving banking ecosystem in developing nations, and you don't need you know, a bank to be able to underwrite you to get, to get online. You can do that yourself. And I kind of gave the example of, of the company in Venezuela, but it's not just the unbanked and the underbanked. Uh, Coinbase recently commissioned a report that showed that 67% of Americans think that the current financial system needs a significant update or a complete overhaul. They think the system is inequitable and outdated. And blockchain is the first time that a new system is being built without the assumptions of the old one. It's being built outside of that, right? So we don't have things like bank holidays or wire cutoff times or ATM fees. And at Coinbase, we are really focused on developing the infrastructure around this global secure payments rails. And we're also building the you know, really trusted on and off ramps that are gonna enable people to move from the traditional infrastructure into this new world that is more inclusive and empowers economic freedom around the world. And Mark, with the minute we have left, we'll close with you. Okay, so um, uh, 
just I'll focus just briefly on the bridge aspect, all right? And so, um, you know, I think uh, the technology is one thing. The technology, to, to a large extent, exists. There's great examples of that in the developing world. Digital payments uh, across the world grew, grew at about 13% a year for the past three years. It was about 25% in developing economies. But what's really critical, particularly in developing economies, is um, addressing some of the political um, and economic issues that impede access to financial services. And um, you know, that's, that's around um, economic equality, political stability, th things like that. And I think there's a lot that the private sector and governments can do together to, to work on that. And some of the work that Visa has been doing leads the way there. There's good examples of that actually really working in the United States. In 2011, according to the FDIC, there was 8.2% of the population was unbanked. Um, just in 2021, just released data, that's down to 4.5%. And if you really dig into that, that 4.5%, it now falls into two categories. Those that aren't eligible for a bank account, literally because they, you know, they can't prove who they are or you know, um, they have other, other issues. And the others are those that, that don't want one. And um, so, um, uh, working together, I think uh, the private sector and governments can address that issue. Well, thank you everyone for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, Lauren. Uh, really a great panel. And we, again, we'll, we'll stay afterwards for a bit uh, for any one-on-one -on -one conversations that you'd like to have, but thank you so much. Thank you.